Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's groundbreaking book, In This Together, landed on bookstore shelves with a powerful message. When we work together, we can do absolutely anything. Guidance from 40 women leaders with specific strategies to help women advance their careers makes In This Together even more relevant today, especially with the pandemic's impact on women in the workforce. Take your career to the next level with Dr. Nancy O'Reilly's In This Together, now available on audiobook. Download your copy today. If you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go with a group. Folks, this podcast is brought to you by the Real Leaders Impact Collaborative, our once-a-month virtual impact CEO peer groups who meet to support each other with whatever is keeping them up at night. I joined the group back in September, and if I had to say the one major takeaway that I've received is that to not let things outside business affect your on-court performance. This little change has certainly reflected in our business growth and development. And when our members do well, more lives are transformed. That's what impact is all about. So if you're interested, please email us at info at real-leaders.com. Just say the podcast sent you and you want to speak to someone about the impact collaborative. Again, that's info at real hyphen leaders.com. Enjoy the show. The conversation around mental health is going to shift, right? Right now, when it comes to our physical health, we know that, for example, going to the gym makes us stronger, makes us live longer, makes us healthier, makes us happier. We don't all go to the gym, but we accept that to be true. I don't think there's anyone who's really going to debate the, the knowledge of that. Very few people think about their mental health that way. But the exact same thing is true, which is if like you're connected, if everything's working, you know, between your heart and your head very effectively, you're going to be happier, you're going to be healthier, you're going to be stronger, you're going to have more resilience, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that flip towards looking at our mental health with that same degree of proactivity as we look at our physical health, it's going to drive a flip in how the medical system gets implemented, you know, start with the head and then the rest of the body can kind of flow from there. Uh, because if you got this in alignment, the rest starts to flow. Um, and so I think we're going to see a shift in how we approach um, healthcare overall. And what's that's going, what the rest of it kind of portends to me is like a, a much more thoughtful, compassionate community. You are listening to the Real Leaders Podcast, where leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that message today comes from Ronan Levy, executive chairman of Field Trip, who is leading a shift in mental health through the combination of psychedelics and psychotherapy. And in today's episode, Levy shares his personal and professional perception of psychedelics, the benefits for patients suffering from PTSD and addiction, and that real leaders ultimately expand consciousness. So without further interruption, may I introduce to you episode 207 with the real Ronan Levy. Enjoy. Today, but with that being said, Ronan, my friend, let's get this show on the road here. Here we go. In five, four, three, two, and one. And welcome everyone to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards. Joining us today is Ronan Levy, the executive chairman of Field Trip Health. Ronan, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a real pleasure. The pleasure is mine, my friend. I mean, I'm doing research on you. I've, I've looked into your background. So let's just kind of bring our audience up to speed. Fill us in about what's gotten you to this point uh, in, with Field Trip Health and, and what did you do beforehand? Sure. So actually, I'm, I'm a lawyer by training uh, of all things, uh, but I was never cut out to be a lawyer. First day of law school, I got there. I'm like, oh, this is this is not my place. These are not my people. I have wonderful friends from my time in law school, but uh, definitely wasn't a career path that was meant for my future. I've always been um, someone like who likes to challenge conventions, do things and take particular pleasure in doing things that people say you can't do, you know, within reason, as long as it's thoughtful and respectable. I remember sure. when I was a kid, uh, I read a, a little thing in a newspaper 
that had a quote from Mark Twain. I don't remember exactly what the quote was, but I remember how they described Mark Twain. They described him as the stern foe of all sham. And I was like seven or eight years old. I really didn't know what that meant at the time, but something about it spoke to my soul and I cut it out of the newspaper and stuck it in my wallet that had absolutely no money in it for a long, long time uh, and just carried it around because something about it really spoke to me. And, and with time and progression, uh, I started to appreciate what it meant, which is we don't have to take anything for granted. We can question everything. In fact, I think we have an obligation to question everything because I think two uh, or one of the most powerful forces um, in human existence is inertia and a willingness to accept that's which what is given to us and, and that which is the status quo. And that's just never really resonated with me. Uh, and those are the things I'd call sham. And, and so that's kind of set me on my path. Um, I left the practice of law, started a few businesses, got actively involved in the Canadian medical cannabis industry, um, in part because I thought, you know, there's a unique opportunity to wade into an industry that a lot of people, at least at that time, wanted nothing to do with this because like cannabis was for stoners and all this kind of stuff and didn't believe it had therapeutic value. In fact, I didn't really believe it had therapeutic value, but I believe that people should have access to it if they want to, that it wasn't really us to judge as long as there's no real externalities and, you know, people have at it with cannabis and that changed quite deeply once we got into the industry and we saw just how profoundly impactful the work we were doing was having on the lives of the patients that we worked with, like truly, truly life-changing experiences. And that opened my eyes to one stigmatized medicines, you know, like cannabis, like psychedelics. And so after we sold that business to Aurora Cannabis, um, which has grown to become one of the largest producers of, of cannabis in the world at the time, they're very small and just getting started. Um, learned about what was happening in psychedelics, realized we had a unique skill set to bring to bear on the emerging psychedelic space and the impact that we could create through psychedelics was going to be truly massive uh, and Field Trip was born. It, that's beautifully put. And you paraphrase Mark Twain, I'll paraphrase Einstein here. You know, he said the splitting of the atom has changed everything except for our mode of thinking. And what right. is that mode of thinking? And so I, I, I'm, I'm interested to understand how psychedelics have changed your mode of thinking as it pertains to how business can be in symbiosis with the planet and society. That, that's a fair question. And I wouldn't argue that psychedelics have changed my perspective on um, how business uh, can operate in symbiosis mm. with the planet. Not that I don't think that it should. I definitely think it should, but it just psychedelics haven't been the avenue to that. That's always think I think been something that's foundational to my belief system. Um, and I heard a great uh, comment the other day, which I think informs this, which is in ancient Greece, competition was conducted with a purpose of trying to bring out the best in your competitor. It wasn't to win. It wasn't to destroy your competitor. Your sole goal, goal as a competitor was to bring out the best in your competition. That's it. Mm. That was the, the purpose. And when I think about business and how business can and should be operated, that's what it should be. It shouldn't be a race to the bottom. It should be really forcing your competitors and the people who you work with or compete against to step up their game, to improve their quality, to improve their safety, to improve their pricing, to increase accessibility, to minimize their uh, environmental and social impact. These are all the things that competition, when harnessed properly, I think can do. And I think capitalism and, and business is a great form for that. Unfortunately, the conversation around what competition means has, has really been swayed in what I would call a chauvinistic way. And, and that's not necessarily man bashing, but like that kind of masculine perspective of, of sure. win, conquer, you know, Vanny, Vidi, Vici, I say, came, I saw, conquer, all that, you know, is I think a distortion of where it could be. And I think for me, psychedelics hasn't opened my eyes to that, but I think psychedelics will open their people's eyes to that quite a bit. And I think where we're going to go is going to leverage off what we see happening to some degree already with companies like Patagonia and B Corp. It's like, I see a lot of companies whose focus is not on driving costs down and squeezing margins, but increasing value and making more margin by delivering more at the same time. And I think, and I hope that's the future of business. And that's not a psychedelic insight. That's just what I've witnessed from my kind of watching how the markets and successful companies are operating right now. Fair, fair. And we're certified B Corp as well. I don't know if you knew that or not, but we- oh, I didn't know focus. that. That's great. 
tend to focus on primarily certified B corporations. How can you be best for the planet? It's, it's an interesting question. Um, but the benefits, the data, the stigma that is behind these drugs uh, and fungus in particular, uh, what was it that convinced you to go down this path to uh, launch this company and you know hopefully save some lives as well as uh, increase better mental health for patients who need it the most? Sure. Um, it was a confluence of factors. One is I've done a lot of my own work, actually not with psychedelics at all. Uh, I'm relatively new to psychedelic experiences personally, um, but with coaching and meditation and therapy and metaphysics and self-exploration. I've been doing that for about 15 years mm -hmm. just to make the quality of my life better. You know, certainly at various points in my life, I probably would have qualified as being clinically depressed, but God help me if you'd ever have me going to a doctor asking if I was depressed at that time. Um, but I know that even though I don't I'm quite, quite confident, I'm not clinically depressed uh, or anxious right now. I know that doing that work to help the quality of my, of my life, made me feel more confident, made me feel more whole, made me feel more respected, made me feel more, con you know, just powerful overall. And so I had already been predisposed to thinking that the utility of which I'll just call therapy for, for simplicity was great and that everybody should access therapy, um, you know, because it can do so much for you if you can afford and you have access to it. So that was already in my mind. Certainly seeing what we saw in the cannabis industry where we really changed people's lives. I'm not going to say I changed people's lives, but enabling access to this medicine was truly, truly profound for a lot of people. You know, we talked to people who'd be like, you know, I've tried every other medicine, nothing's worked. And truthfully, maybe even the cannabis didn't work, but you know what, let me do it. Let me sleep through the night for the first time in seven years. And that's made a huge difference in the quality of my life. And you hear those stories enough, you realize you're creating real impact. So I had a predisposition to this kind of work. Um, I saw what stigmatized medicines and what changing attitudes around these once held viewpoints could do for people's lives. And then coincidentally, after we left Aurora, the first conversation, uh, one of the first conversations that we had, um, and, and when I say we, I speak to my, about myself, uh, and we have five total co-founders, all of whom deserve recognition in this conversation. It's just me who has the privilege and the pleasure of getting to tell the story. Um, one of the first conversations was with a, a woman named Judy Bloomstock, who's actually the CEO of a company called Diamond Therapeutics. And she was doing work on, on psychedelics. And she was the one who alerted us to how the cultural zeitgeist around psychedelics had already changed. You know, most people weren't aware that the shift had happened, but she alerted it to us. She told us that, you know, Michael Pollan had just published How to Change Your Mind, which if you haven't read it yet, you should. It's a fantastic book. MAPS uh, had been granted breakthrough therapy designation for their MDMA-assisted therapy trials. Um, and Peter Thiel had invested in Compass Pathways, which was doing something with psilocybin. And, it, and most importantly, there's two other pieces. One, she told me, <laughs> told us that there are a variety of online stores in Canada openly selling psilocybin mushrooms, right? Not, not dark web, like World Wide Web, openly selling, hop online, send them money, they send you mushrooms. And that's when I realized that the shift had already happened in like human consciousness, that psychedelics were coming. Uh, we were just catching up to that shift, uh, starting to manifest itself. But more importantly, she said, a single psilocybin assisted therapy session is like 10 years of therapy in an afternoon. And I don't know how true that is. It does seem, based on a lot of the evidence, that it's not actually that outlandish of a statement, but even assuming it's a significant exaggeration, what it reminded me was, and, and this is still the archetype I use when I think about why we're doing what we're doing. I use the archetype of a 28-year-old Pittsburgh bro. I don't know why Pittsburgh, but that was just the my, picture that came up in my mind sure, yeah. who almost certainly would never be caught dead in a therapist's office, you know, almost certainly would never be willing to talk about his emotions. But I think I could make an argument to get that 28 year old Pittsburgh bro to try mushrooms sometime. And just by virtue of trying mushrooms, if mushrooms are anything approximately close to 10 years of a therapy of therapy in an afternoon, then you're going to move that person's lives an entire mile you know, maybe even more. And if we can get, you know, a million or 10 million or a hundred million people just to move their lives one or 2% or 3% to being more coherent, more emotional, more thoughtful, you know, more empathetic, 
there's nothing in this world that we could do to create better impact. In my mind, that's like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk putting people on Mars in terms of the future capacity and impact on humanity. And, and so from that conversation, I realized we had to do something in this space, that we had unique skill sets, we had unique qualifications, we had access to capital, uh, we had great reputations, and I wanted to leverage those to, to help build the, the emerging psychedelic industry. I think it's very brave. You know, I think that takes a lot of courage to do something like that. And for anyone listening out to this, you know, conversation right now, whether you're live or you're listening to this on audio, you know, part of leadership, you've got to be very open-minded about these things. And this closed-mindedness has really got us into this state that, you know, where we are right now. So what I want you to do real quick, Ronan, is I want to go through some of the therapeutic uses for the type of individuals that this would help. Let's start with PTSD. Could you explain uh, your stereotypical uh, soldier, veteran who's experienced PTSD and how something like this is not just a remedy, but an actual cure? Sure. There, there's two ways to answer that question. One is to look at the objective data. The other is to look at the subjective experiences. Okay. Uh, from the subjective, and, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky with the science of psychedelics, is we don't really know why they do what they do. Um, you know, it really could all be placebo effect. You know, we, we know that there's you know, certain receptor binding in the brain. We know that the brain lights up. But it does seem on, on a very real basis that the real healing comes from feeling emotions that people had blocked off. You know, we talk about this in therapy of closing off your emotions, bottling up our, our, your emotions, men in particular, but all people are taught to bottle up their emotions and don't cry, right? You can see how that, that storyline fits very closely with a lot of soldiers out there. Um, and, and through the traumatic experiences that you get in theater and even not in theater, I mean, there's a lot of studies that found that non-people, soldiers who don't even go to theater still end up with a lot of PTSD. I think it comes from the bottling up of these emotions and the denial of, and I get it sounds very woo-woo, but like the feeling of love and the energy of love and empathy and all these positive feelings and emotions and energies, they get denied. And what MDMA-assisted therapy does um, is two things. One is, for whatever reason, the way MDMA works, it's known as an empathogen. It enables people to feel emotions, positive emotions that they had otherwise not been able to or had been blocked off. Um, but then also what happens is the experience, the MDMA assisted therapy session has two therapists who sit there and be present um, for you. And this is a really powerful thing. And I, I know I just experienced it personally myself that when you're at your most vulnerable um, and when you're truly emotionally splayed open, and this is what MDMA can do as well as other psychedelics, and there's someone who's there for you, you know, and holding space and holding your hand and telling you that you're, you're loved or that you're worthy. It makes a difference. It makes a huge difference. And because the MDMA or the other psychedelics open you up to actually hearing that, not just the words, but the emotions behind it, that's what seems to move people. Um, so that, that seems to be what happens on the subjective level. On the objective level, you know, the data speaks for itself. MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, a nonprofit in the U.S., has been conducted FDA-approved clinical trials using MDMA-assisted therapy, and they just completed and announced the results of their, uh, the first part of their phase three trial. Uh, so they're very close to the end of to getting uh, approval for MDMA assisted therapy for the treatment of PTSD. Coming out of those trials, they found that close to 70% of people with chronic severe PTSD who had chronic severe PTSD for an average of 17 years, 70% of them no longer met the DSM requirement to be considered a PTSD patient. We are talking wow. a truly almost effective cure. We can't say it's a true cure because there's only so much time that they followed those people. So potentially PTSD-related symptoms could start emerging six months, a year, two years down the road. But for at least six months, these people were PTSD, PTSD-free, 70% of them. Compare that to the standard of care that we have right now, basically using antidepressants, which seeks to have a 30% improvement in symptoms versus a 70% cure rate. And we're talking massive impact, just, just massive impact for anybody like soldiers in particular who have PTSD, but I mean, we're talking sexual trauma survivors. We're talking 
survivors of uh, marital violence, all sorts of different ways that this could apply. And, and that's just MDMA. There's all sorts of studies with psilocybin and all that kind of stuff as well. Well, in, and you, you talked about love and I know it releases like oxytocin, which is like the hormone for pregnant ladies that, that's basically for nurturing and connectivity. And it does a lot of, it, it just really highlights those areas of the brains, which indicates it's doing something, but that profound impact, 70% one time. Go for it. I was going to say, it was actually three times. There three was three times. MDMA assisted, assisted therapy sessions, but either way, it's still pretty profound. And we just went through, um, you know, a, a crazy time in, in a period of, of humanity where everyone is, is kind of indoors and isolated and there was a loss of connectivity. What about, I mean, what you're doing here is basically you have psychedelics, you know, psychotherapy, speech therapy, talk therapy, where you get to hash this out after your experience. Is there anything that's missing in terms of connectivity with others? Have you found in your studies or research that during these experiences, it's great to be with other people with PTSD, with other people who have been in jail and don't want to go back, with other people who are opioid addicts and, and letting people know they've been here. Have you seen any research like that? I haven't seen any specific research uh, around pairing people like that together. Certainly, uh, and even we right now through Field Trip Health, we operate clinics providing ketamine-assisted therapy because it's illegal, it's legal and accessible. Um, right now uh, and we're, we're piloting group therapy but because so much of the work around psychedelics is challenging conventions and challenging you know very strongly held stigmas uh, the organizations conducting the cl clinical trials are setting them up as much as possible to make sure they succeed right because it's not just a num normal drug development uh, strategy um, which is extremely rigorous at the worst of times uh, we also have to overcome lots of history, lots of dogma. Um, and so they really designed the trials to be as successful as possible. So for example, um, in that MDMA assisted trial, um, the three sessions were paired with close to 84 hours of therapy time. So it's, it's very intensive, um, and very expensive. And that's one of the big challenges with the emerging psychedelic space. And one of the things we're you know, hyper-focused on as a business, which is how do we actually make this more accessible because that's incredibly expensive. Uh, but because they're focused on making sure the trials succeed, they're providing as much immediate care as possible. And once we get through that, then I think there's going to be a lot more interest and openness to finding out how group dynamics have an impact on the outcomes. I've always been curious as to why this dogma started, the dogma that you're referring to, especially for people who are also drug users. They drink alcohol, they smoke cigarettes. These are the same yeah. people, uh, you know, putting down something that's actually our ancestors, something that we've evolved from fungus. That's from Paul Stamets. He told us that on the show. Yeah. That's why yeah. a lot of people are saying that. So where do you think that, where do you think that comes from that dogma? Uh, you know, it, 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 I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist, but, uh, and some people may chalk this up to conspiracy theory, although I think the evidence, the historical record speaks for itself is, this was an implementation of political control. You know, this was the Nixon government realizing that there is a powerful social movement being um, generated, particularly by the counterculture and the hippie movement that posed a, you know, an existential threat, not only to their political control, but probably on a, on a more sincere basis, what they viewed as proper, good, healthy, functioning society. Um, and so for both the reasons that they wanted to maintain political influence and because I do genuinely believe that they cared about what society should look like, you know, they wanted to stop it. And so in 1969 and 1970, across the U.S., um, psilocybin and LSD were scheduled and banned. And, and most research, at least in North America, stopped. It certainly continued to some degree in Europe, but uh, that brought a pretty harsh um, end to it. And, and on the back of that, the, the war on drugs was commenced, which... You know, <laughs> after Joe Biden was elected, there's a lot of memes going around, which I really appreciated because I thought they're totally on point where they said, nice. congratulations to the drugs for winning the war on drugs. Um, and it was a good reminder that, you know, how foolish the war on drugs is, because like if the U.S. government can not can not effectively stop people from wanting and using drugs, um, notwithstanding probably one of the most aggressive truthfully war campaigns in history 
uh, you're not going to stop this. So instead of trying to fight the war on drugs, maybe we should work together with them and find to make find a way to make sure that people have safe legal access to drugs and can do them in a very thoughtful, informed, and conscientious way. And when things get out of hand, you know that we have the resources and support to make sure that the damage is is minimal. Uh, it seems like a much better strategy than the one that's been adopted so far. I mean, I would think so. Absolutely. Uh, the, the problem is that the, the dogma and the, I guess, the retaliation, and I think this is fair too, is the gateway uh, situation. And when we kind of bring this into society, it's influential, it trickles down. What are your thoughts on just like drug legalization as a whole? Do you think it's category by category or do you think they should all be lifted and be regulated to ensure the quality and the efficacy of these drugs? Because essentially, the brain is is just a brain a drug factory, right? It's not yeah. really it's it's just, the brain doing is doing all of it. The drugs just enable the receptor. So, explain uh, your thoughts on uh, legalization of all drugs. Yeah, my, my personal philosophy right now, and it's certainly open to being uh, a, you know adjusted, is I think both in terms of social acceptance as well as doing this on a on an incremental, thoughtful basis. So we're just not going carte blanche the other way doing it on a category by category basis. We know cannabis is safe. We know psychedelics, particularly when provided in controlled environments, you know, in a therapeutic setting, like exactly what's being proposed in, in Oregon can be extremely, extremely safe. Um, you know, as you get into heroin and cocaine and substances that are more addictive and have greater uh, externalities. So the decision of someone to start using heroin and potentially get addicted and, and make decisions based on that, it becomes a it's a it's a harder argument and i'm not necessarily opposed to it but like let's start with what we know with a pretty good degree of certainty and start legalizing the ones that i think can be administered and provided safely and thoughtfully and, and kind of go from there i certainly think you know criminalizing access to drugs is idiotic um that serves no purpose because truthfully many many um people outside of the opioid addiction, you know, are using drugs to cover up emotional pain. Um, so putting them in jail where undoubtedly they're going to be re-traumatized and re-traumatized and re-traumatized does not seem like an effective solution to address the underlying issues. Um, but whether we should provide legal access to substances like heroin and, and cocaine and, and some of the more challenging street drugs, I'm, I'm to be decided on that. But I don't think we need to decide that just quite yet. What I'm just curious in is, and the thing we brought up in the very beginning, the mode of thinking, this paradigm shift, if, you know, if, if more people had these experiences, what would the world look like? You know, we talk about recidivism, we can talk about opioid uh, users, we can talk about PTSD, but what about the common, hardworking, humble folk that are working nine to five every day, stuck in the rat race, and are unleashing on the weekends? Uh, and mm -hmm. going back to work on Mondays and, you know, in males over 40, the suicide rate's super you know, way high up. COVID, 11% of adults are now saying they've thought and contemplated committing suicide. What about the everyday person and how do you see this growing uh, or being implemented at a slow rate until it's fully adopted? That's a fair question. I don't think anyone's asked that specific question. You know, I think what's so exciting about psychedelics and psychedelic assisted therapies in particular is that they have capacity to actually um, do wonders for just about everybody on the planet, right? You know, we're not just talking about treating depression or post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, psychedelics have been shown, you know, quite frequently to help people deal with trauma. We all have trauma, you know. Uh, I was just listening to a Radiolab podcast where they asked a question about, you know, the whole birthing process and how when you're born, you know, it's a cold shock to the system coming out of the warm womb into the cold air. But that shock is essential because that's what actually triggers the respiratory, the respiratory system in, in the baby, right? Um, but trauma is part of life, right? And like, uh, and so we all have it and it's part of our jobs, I think, to work through the trauma and process the emotions. And I think as a society, we're really terrible at that. I'm certainly guilty of that. That's been my journey for 15 years, just getting more comfortable with feeling and expressing my emotions. Um, and so psychedelics have the capacity to help people work through traumas. They have the capacity to help people just feel a, a greater sense of connection to themselves or to other people or to the planet. Um, they have the capacity to help people with creativity. You know, um, all of these Again, I'll use the word energies that I think most people want more of in this world. No one's going to say 
there's too much creativity. No one's going to say there's too much empathy. No one's going to say there's too much love in this world. We can't possibly get enough of these things. And psychedelics, even if you're a 40 year old working guy, you know, in the Midwest, it's like, why wouldn't you want to feel more love? You know, wasn't that going to make your relationship with your, your spouse, spouse better? Isn't that going to enable you to be a better parent? You know, these are things that I believe most, it's, it's innate to most people that they want to have better connection. They want to have better relationship with their kids. They want to feel like they're better parents. They want to feel like they're more productive members of society. Maybe it's not uniform. Maybe it's not universal, but it sure seems like there's a lot of people who would benefit from that. And so providing access to this kind of care to help people get in touch with pieces of them that they've lost, um, I think is, is important. You know, an, an anecdote um, sure. nobody likes to feel controlled. I don't think, I think it's a, an inherent human experience that feeling controlled is something that we don't want. We naturally rail against no, I think most life does. Right. And I see it with my dog he certainly has oppositional defiance disorder, but, um, <laughs> you know, if someone was telling me the other day, Erwin, actually the person I work with was like, just think about even the moment of birth, right? Like when the doctor, what's the first thing that happens when a child is born? It's a boy, it's a girl. In a second, you've already been defined. Who you are going to be has already been defined. That right has been taken away from you. Mm. You know, I know this is like a very kind of like outlandish example, but I think not it's instructive of like, wow, a lot of our path is not decided by us. And now that's partly necessary. You're a child, you know, you don't have the capacity to take care of yourself. Your parents are going to do a lot of it. But as we grow older, you know, we get that freedom back. And I think psychedelics really can help enable us to tap into a lot of those freedoms and, and things we were denied, whether it's denial of love, denial of like activity, whatever it was. Uh, so for a 40 year old working person, wonderful. What, what potential capacity to expand their lives so far outside of the realm of what they know? Well, it used to be like a rite of passage for a lot of indigenous communities, I, I heard. And, you know, it, it really lowers your guard in terms of insecurities, right? You, you really notice your insecurities. Why do I do this? And you're accepting of those insecurities. So I like to explain to people, it's like, you know, like Joe Rogan says, you know, you put it in a folder, all your old BS, you know, in that folder. And time to time, people go back to that folder. So when it comes to uh, rolling this out, your, your prior history, with uh, uh, marijuana and, and being bought purchased by Aurora. Um, do you see it rolling out the same way with the measures in Oregon and these local communities in San Francisco and Denver? Or do you think this could be something that could be federally, you know, legalized at the federal level one day? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's going to go both ways. It's going to go state by state, measure by measure. You know, there's going to be a lot of yeah. political activism. Um, at the same time, there's going to be, um, you know, federal, I'm not going to say legalization because that's the right, wrong word for the, the, the discussion. It's going to be federal regulatory approval, um, which is fantastic. I, I'm actually very supportive of both working out the same way because on the federal side, you're going to have PTSD approved for, sorry, MDMA approved for PTSD. Um, but if you don't have PTSD, you know, you should have a flag. Excuse my language. I hope it's okay. It's okay. Um, but, you know, with these state access programs, especially like what's been modeled in Oregon, which I'm a big supporter of, it's like, you don't have to meet a diagnosis of PTSD according to the DSM. Maybe I can't even afford to go to a psychiatrist or find one to actually give me that diagnosis. But I know I've got that issue. And now you, I have access. One of, one of the big challenges is still going to be you know, financial access because you have a therapist present because there's going to be controls and regulations. It's still going to be expensive. And then that's right. one of the big hurdles to climb, but at least the option is now there for anybody. Those who are sick, who really need it, have the diagnosis, you know, it's great to have that federal regulatory approval because then there should be some robust insurance coverage, which makes it more accessible. And for everybody else who isn't diagnosed, who just wants to work through their stuff, you know, now you'll have an opportunity to do so without fear of criminal uh, recrimination, um, and you'll have certainty of supply. You know, that's always one of the big risks of anything is that because everything I've pushed underground, you can't trust the veracity of any psilocybin or MGMA you, you, you receive, you know, you have to test it all the time. Whereas why not, if people are getting it anyway, maybe let's make sure it's, it's being provided safely and cleanly. In terms of, uh, the investors that you're working with and the trends that they see, I know you mentioned maps a few times. Rick Dublin's estimating five to 6,000 of these facilities 
in 20 years. It's hard to conceptualize at a time right now when it's still that stigma. What are some trends that you're seeing that you, you are, are happy about or excited about in terms of implementing and making sure these facilities can, can reach a lot of different people? I mean, certainly the awareness uh, that's happening socially, culturally around psychedelics, even politically, we've been having, uh, you know, p political conversations at pretty senior levels of, of government in Canada. And mm. you may have seen that uh, former Senator uh, Tom Daschle has joined us as a special advisor. So, you know, this conversation has started reaching the highest levels of government, which is very favorable. Uh, and as well as just the social discourse, you can't pick up. I have, uh, it's in my closet over here. You know, we have the front cover of the New York Times. They had an article that uh, said a, a revolution in psychiatry is in psychiatry is here with psychedelics, right? Once you hit the cover of the New York Times, you know, you've hit a level of mainstream awareness. And I really think of that article as the, as the starting gun um, for the real conversation. There's been a lot of conversations up to that point, but to me, that's the starting line. Um, so these trends are positive. Certainly the investment in the industry is incredibly positive. Um, I think it's something like $2 billion has been raised into the psychedelics industry over the last year or something like that. And, and we're getting uh, a lot of interest from some of the most sophisticated investors out there, particularly vis-a-vis uh, pharmaceuticals, biotech, health tech, all that kind of stuff. Um, and we're not the only ones. You know, we raised $95 million in March from some of the leading biotech funds. A tie went public um, on on the NASDAQ, uh, Compass Pathways is public on the NASDAQ. We expect to be uh, on the NASDAQ, you know, fairly shortly. We've announced that we've applied. So um, we're getting the kind of right investor interest. That certainly is very favorable. The one sort of, oops, I'm sorry if you hear my dog. Uh, the one caution I have is that a lot of people, a lot of investors are bringing a conventional biotech lens to the psychedelics industry. Like it just like it fits like every other medicine out there. And in terms of the approval process, that is correct. You still go through phase one, phase two, phase three. But one of the things that's really unique about psychedelic medicine is that's the first, I think, real implementation of experiential medicine, that the set and setting, which you'll hear about quite a bit when you talk about psychedelics, as well as the therapies that paired with a drug seem to have as much or equal impact as the drug itself, right? So you have these two things operating hand in hand. It's very different than conventional medicine where you go to the doctor, the doctor gives you a pill, you hope it gets better. Psychedelic medicine is active medicine. Psychedelic medicine is experiential medicine. Where you do it matters. These six to 8,000 centers really matter. So if you're looking at this from a, an investing perspective, you know, and you look at a company that's just like, oh, we're just doing drug development in the same old way that all drugs have been approved. You just have to, you know, at least I ask myself the question, it's like, how does that make sense? This is a different model. It's a different system. It's going to be very different. It's going to be one where brands matter, right? Because if your expectations of the experience have an impact on your therapeutic outcome, then you better make sure that person has a good expectation going into the experience. That's why you'll see with Field Trip, our brand is very humanistic. It's it's very customer centric because those are the people who are going to be impacted, and if their expectations are high, then it's more likely to lead to a good outcome. Also, because of these two systems, because of the FDA approval system, along with the the measure ballot based system happening, this industry is going to look kind of like a cross between conventional medicine and cannabis because you're going to have synthetic approved drugs, but you're going to have these state access system with natural products, and they're going to frankly overlap quite closely. Um, and so again, this doesn't look like conventional medicine. It's not like, you know, I mean a little bit now, but you can't go to uh, your doctor and get an antibiotic and then go to, you know, an apothecary and get uh, a natural form of the exact same antibiotic, right? Like it's, it's not how medicine works. And so there's a lot of differences and a lot of nuances that I think really matter and will really matter, matter in the evolution of this industry that people are paying attention to it in part going back to one of the first points of this conversation is because it, it's inertia we're used to the systems we know and we don't really like change particularly as we get older um and and that challenges us and a lot of people don't like being challenged fortunately psychedelics seem to have a really great breakthrough ability to help people see the world in a different perspective so maybe it'll change investing strategies too in the future and running you, you mentioned your definition of competition to make the other person better. Do you see this uh, when you're creating synthetic uh, psilocybin? Do you see this being a challenge 
in terms of making sure that it doesn't go overboard like we saw in the opioid industry and on street drugs and things like this where it's mixed in and, and now we have developed these drugs that can become more addictive to treat more consumers and maybe less potent so they're coming back. Uh, what are some things in terms of competition and developing this you know, great chemical that be become, could become a challenge? That's, that's a good question. I haven't, I think the biggest challenge I've seen in what's emerging right now is there seems to be a lot of factionalization. There seems to be, you know, the, the pro-business, pro-capitalist uh, people who believe, and, and we're amongst them, that business is the best way to enable this to scale. Science and business scales this to more people and creates more impact, even if it loses some of the soul, for lack of a better term, of the historical practices around psychedelics. Um, and then there's the people who believe in, in the, the culture and the traditions and, and the practices and, and some of the what gets termed the woo-woo stuff, which stuff I personally subscribe to, but I'm happy to speak on either side of the conversation because the truth of the matter is the woo-woo stuff is great for some people and then other people just want a clean medical system that they understand um, and both, I think, are going to move the, the needle. But too often, at least in the early days of the industry and to a lesser degree now, but it's still happening. You know, there's just like no, there's no common ground between those two. I think that's a big challenge. But in terms of what I've seen in, in the businesses who are trying to execute this, and I wasn't involved, you know, with Purdue or any of those companies. I was probably a little bit too young when this is all happening. But the people who are leading this, I think, are all doing it for the right reasons. They have really high intentions. They have really high expectations. There's not a single person I've met yet in the industry who I'm like, he's just in it for a buck. Um, and and so I have high hopes for it. And then the only other thing I can invite is like, let's be responsive. Let's be responsible that when we see um, actions or characteristics that are moving away from, I think, the high ideals that all of us have, we're just approaching it from different ways. Let's work together to address that in a, in a conscientious way so we don't recreate the opioid crisis, so we don't recreate the, the 1970s that engenders this massive backlash and sets all of really, I think, this wonderful scientific progress mm -hmm. forward. Uh, so it doesn't create a backlash to all of the scientific progress that we've made and, and send it backwards in time. So you're providing a service, but you're also developing a synthetic uh, psilocybin drug. Is that right? We're that provide, so yeah, yeah. So we have field trip. We have two divisions. We have field trip health, which is building the clinical infrastructure to deliver psychedelic therapies at scale. Because the truth is, we've never done this for a lot of people. Um, anybody right. has, right? And so because set setting and therapy matter, because the experience matters. We know that it matters, but we don't really know exactly how or what about it matters. We're really focused on, hey, delivering care to people and, and using ketamine-assisted therapy, which we can do now to make people's lives better, but at the same time, starting to understand all of those dynamics about how do we make this really consistent, predictable medicine so we can deliver great outcomes all the time for all the drug development stuff. Our field trip discovery division is not developing a synthetic psilocybin. We're actually developing a novel uh, psychedelic molecule. It's derived from a known um, synthetic psychedelic. We haven't disclosed which one, so it's a little bit hard to describe it. But we we took a, a known one. You can go out and read the trip reports about it. It's um, subjectively, it's very similar to psilocybin in terms of what people experience it. Um, and objectively, it hits the same receptors in the brain uh, with almost the same de degree of capacity. But what's different about it is it's a two to three hour trip, whereas psilocybin is a four, six, eight hour trip. And so what we like about this is this just becomes much more clinically efficient and effective as a medicine, which is we think we can deliver the same therapeutic outcomes in half the time, uh, which we think is, is really positive in order in, in, in terms of enabling access because it'll just become more accessible. But it's not psilocybin per se, it's very psilocybin-like. And I'm curious from just like the business perspective, how are you going to ensure that quality experience? Are you training uh, the psychotherapists? Are they already trained? You have to take them through an exercise. What's that process going uh, like? 
Yeah, so I mean that's part of the the strategic and and you know industry rationale for field trip health centers. And right now we're in Toronto, New York, LA, Chicago, Atlanta. We sign leases in San Diego, um, San Carlos, Seattle, Washington DC, Austin, Miami. We'll be at twenty locations before the end of the year. Um, and so yeah, we're we're doing trading in all. Thank you uh, in all of these locations to help breed a, you know, truthfully, I hate the word because it brings a military context into like a conversation that's basically the antithesis of military, but to build an army of therapists um, who are qualified and trained. I mean, one of the big sources of conversation in the industry is whether you need to have a psychedelic experience in order to be a qualified psychedelic therapist. Um, you know, it's not easy. It's it's not very often the case that a doctor tries the medicine that he or she is administering to a patient. So how do we enable therapists to really provide a container and a space to deliver this kind of care? But we're doing the best we can with what we've got to to enable uh, to enable that. So what does the, the future behold for us then long term? If, if this is past, if things uh, go our way, obviously it's gonna take a lot of time, a lot of activism. Us in the media have to talk about it. We have to have these open conversations, but let's say we're 20 years down the road and it's kind of a normal thing to just talk about. Mm -hmm. What do you think that's gonna do for people? And what do you think it's gonna do for society? Um, on, a, on a functional basis, my prediction is, and I'll try and offer softer answers as well. Um, but on a functional basis, I think you're going to see a real revolution in medicine. I think you're going to see um, a pivot away from the body being the focus of medicine to your emotions, your your mental health being the focus of medicine, right? And it's not it's not an exclusion; it's just a reordering. But we know that one's outlook, one's mindset, uh, one's perspective has an impact on their physical health as well. We know that you know people who are depressed are less productive. We know that people who are depressed are greater drains on the medical system, even though their physical health may be exactly the same. And I think you're going to find people as they start working with psychedelic therapies are going to find a greater attachment and degree of rapport and comfort with their psychedelic therapy provider than the medical doctor you see for 15 minutes once a year for your annual checkup, right? So there's going to be a greater degree of trust and rapport. And what we see happening is, and what I expect to happen, and one of the things I find so exciting is the conversation around mental health is going to shift, right? Right now, when it comes to our physical health, we know that, for example, going to the gym makes us stronger, makes us live longer, makes us healthier, makes us happier. We don't all go to the gym, but we accept that to be true. I don't think there's anyone who's really going to debate the, the knowledge of that. Very few people think about their mental health that way. But the exact same thing is true, sure, yeah, which yeah. is if like you're connected, if everything's working, you know, between your heart and your head very effectively, you're going to be happier, you're going to be healthier, you're going to be stronger, you're going to have more resilience, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And so I think that flip towards looking at our mental health with that same degree of proactivity as we look at our physical health, it's going to drive a flip in how the medical system gets implemented, you know, start with the head and then the rest of the body can kind of flow from there. Uh, because if you got this in alignment, the rest starts to flow. Um, and so I think we're going to see a shift in how we approach um, healthcare overall. And what's that's going, what the rest of it kind of portends to me is like a, a much more thoughtful, compassionate community, you know, where, people have greater connection with friends. People have greater regard for the planet. People are working together in a community. You know, we went, we were all communal living uh, beings for the longest time until the last couple hundred years by and large. And then we went to this whole nuclear family construct. And I think a lot of our mental health challenges could probably be directly tied back to the idea that, uh, you know, there's the nuclear family and we're not part of a broader community and a broader ecosystem. And so I think, a lot of that's going to shift. I don't. I don't necessarily foresee we go back to the whole hippie thing where like people are living in communes and all that kind of stuff. I don't. I don't think we go there. I think we're we're more sophisticated. It's important to keep in mind that the counterculture movement was a whole bunch of quite literally twenty year olds very high on LSD, you know, and and they just didn't have the maturity or sophistication that someone in their thirties or forties have with some life experience and realizing that. Life is a lot more textured and nuanced than you might perceive at the age of twenty. Um, that's not to say all 20 year olds are not capable of it, but I'd say the majority still have some growth and learning to do. We even know that in the brain. And this movement is being driven by 
people of a, you know with a benefit of the people from the 60s you know dr andrew weil um dennis mckenna rick doblin all the people who experienced it the first time are able to leverage their insights and they're helping craft the direction of of this movement and so i think yeah i don't think you're going to see a massive revolutionary shift like we saw with the hippies i just think you'll see slow subtle incremental changes to a more inclusive welcoming loving society which i think is going to be amazing well ronan that's a that's definitely a world i want to live in and i appreciate you coming on this show today talking about that i think that takes a lot of courage to kind of do what you're doing on a daily basis hearing from all the people with dogma around this uh this thing that is you know again our ancestors so Let's bring this home. Ronan Levy, what is your definition of a real leader? To me, uh, I'm gonna answer it as what is the definition of real leadership? And, and to me, real leadership is risking something that might force you to rethink your thoughts and suffer change and stretch your consciousness. Real, real leadership is you know, risking your cliches. And I'm paraphrasing Tom Robbins um, on that quote, uh, but I think it's true. I think real leadership is willing to learn. Uh, and keep an open mind. Ronan, it's been a pleasure having you on this show today. I'm so happy we had you on. When, when I saw you guys reach out, it was an instant yes. Awesome. Uh, thank you. So, thank you for having me. It's a real opportunity. I, I, I shared, um, I think I tweeted when, when I got invited that like, I've never seen myself as a leader. That's like one of my personal growth things. It's like, I can't see myself from that light. I think a lot of people do see me as a leader, but I've never been comfortable with that notion as all, at all. So being invited to be on our, you know, the Real Leaders podcast is, is quite, uh, quite an, uh, an opportunity and, and I'm very grateful for it. Well, this show's definitely changed my perspective on leadership because there's not one definition. 500 people on the show, it's not all the same. So I think you're spot on. I think you are a real leader. We appreciate you coming on for Ronan Le uh, Levy. I'm Kevin Edwards asking you to go out there, stretch your consciousness, and always, folks, keep it real. Thanks, Ronan. Thank you. All right, and thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast with Ronan Levy. I hope you enjoyed it, folks, as much as we did. Now it's time to open it up for some questions, Ronan. We had one fly in during the show. And folks, while we're reading off these questions, please, please, please participate. If you're watching this on LinkedIn, come on over to Crowdcast. Come say hello and be a part of this conversation. We got about five more minutes to go here. First one is this. And folks, if you want to hear the rest of Ronan's answers, well, you have to be a part of our free community where you can unlock access to live interviews and ask the guests your direct questions after the show. All you have to do is go online to realers.com slash podcast and click on any upcoming interview to attend the show live. Also, for folks listening on Apple Podcasts, help us out and leave a review. Let us know what you liked, how we can improve, or simply who you want to see on the show. And lastly, folks, if you want to email me directly about a leader who is driving change in your community, well, just send us an email to be at real-leaders.com. That's B-E at real-leaders.com. That's it for me. Thanks for being a real leader and stay tuned for the next episode. And thank you, good people, for hanging on to this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. And before we go today, I just want to make sure that you are all aware that we have now launched our new Real Leaders membership. If you want to get access to all of Real Leaders Magazine, private member-only events, and free courses online, hit the link in the show notes and enter in coupon code PODCAST20 to receive 20% off a 100 dollar a year subscription hit the link in the show notes enter in coupon code podcast 20 to receive access to all of real leaders to get you to the next level thanks for listening to this episode and always keep it real